WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the creator of comics like Slightly Exaggerated and Beastlands, which is being collected in trade June 29th from Dark Horse, Curtis Clow. Thanks for joining us, Curtis. Hey guys, thanks for having me. So uh, what are some of the first comics you remember reading? I read some random single issues from Borders back in the day. That's where I would get my comics from as a kid. It's like a music store. Uh, I, I was on the East Coast. I don't know if they were everywhere, but um, I would read like Wolverine, Spider-Man and stuff, uh, Silver Surfer. Just I wasn't reading anything monthly, but it was just random. Whatever I could get my hands on. Uh, I was always drawn to comics, but I just didn't know like about any comic shops or where to get them until I was like in my late teens, early 20s when I started really getting into like image and Kickstarter stuff. That's when I would start like actually like following comics, like obviously like Kirkman's and Remenders and stuff. But yeah, back then, just random Spider-Man, Wolverine, just whatever I could get a hold of. Yes, yes. As as New Jersey residents, we we had borders. Yeah. I worked at a borders for a ooh, on and off for five, six years. Oh, that's and funny. Hearing you say, uh, you know, as a teenager made me just turn to dust a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> That, that keeps happening with, yeah, <laughs> with each week. We're not yeah, getting any younger. <laughs> my, fa- my favorite was we had a guest on and he had a comic that was out that was set in 1994. And I asked him what he was doing and li- listening to it in 1994. And he said, well, I was three. So and I'm like, oh, that sounds oh, about right. I was about two in 94. So <laughs> uh, youths. <laughs> But uh, so let's yeah, let's start by talking about uh, Beastlands, which is uh, your, your comic with artist uh, Joe Miguel and uh, letterer Tobin Resicott that is being collected by Dark Horse uh, at the end of June. Like we said, uh, Matt, would you kindly read the solicit text for the listeners? Keepers are mystical creatures that bond with people who experience great hardships in their lives. Some see them as friends, family even. But others see them as nothing more than dangerous beasts that the world is better without. Mac, Ping, Ava, and their keepers are in search of Mac's father, who vanished one day and never returned. So, uh, you know, reading reading this, reading the, the first five issues of, of Beastlands and, and also uh, first couple issues of Slightly Exaggerated. Obviously, you're a big fantasy guy. I was kind of curious what your own personal fantasy touch tones were, you know, comics, movies, yeah. books, whatever. Yeah, I grew up uh, obviously in the 90s and uh, was a big fan of Studio Ghibli. Uh, like mm-hmm. that really greatly influences all my work just as a kid watching Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away, all those great films. And I still love them. I still watch them yearly in theaters when they re-release them. Uh, that definitely influences all my work, Studio Ghibli. And then uh, I guess just all the uh, you know weird fantasy stuff that I'm reading these days, like I'm always looking for new stuff that's kind of uh, similar to like the tone of fantasy that I like, like Step by Bloody Step, Coda, uh, Seven to Eternity, Seven to Eternity, Remender. Like I think all of that stuff really speaks to me. Isola by uh, Brendan Fletcher and Carl Kershaw, great book. Also, mm-hmm. I just like these weird fantasy worlds that don't uh, don't kill you with exposition and overexplain everything. It's more like you're kind of thrown into the world on this character journey and just kind of like discover the world as you go. So that's kind of like my style of storytelling. And yeah, like I pretty much exclusively write like sci-fi and fantasy. It's just what I love to consume. So obviously, it's like what's always on my mind and what I'm always like trying to think of new takes on. Right on, right on. That's interesting because one of the things that jumped out at me is that you start this story in media res. Yeah. It's like boom, there's you kind of learn the world as you go. 
And I was curious. And so, and you kind of answered it right there, whether that's how you always envisioned it. Obviously it was, since that's. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's very much you, uh, you kind of learn about the world and the go, especially in those first two pages with can throw a lot of people off with the uh, King executing his very own beast and keeper. Um, but yeah, I mean, just as a writer, like I'm always trying to think of ways like that first issue and that opening scene is so important to try to like try to hook the reader and you want people to like obviously read past that opening scene, the opening two pages or the next scene after that. So I'm just trying to do something to try to hook them. And uh, I think that's uh, there's a little bit of world building in that first two pages besides the kind of hook of seeing this king execute. Like he says he had this beast with him since he was like five and it's a pretty traumatic scene and uh, it throws a lot. Of, it could turn a lot of people off, but hopefully it hooks readers and wanting to read more and find out more. And I am just curious since you mentioned what is your favorite Ghibli? I always am curious. With, uh, with Princess Mononoke. Why? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I love a lot of them. Uh, Miyazaki's, all of his films are obviously like my favorites, uh, as most people's. But uh, Mononoke is definitely my favorite. That's a one I have to see yearly, and I feel like I'm always like picking up new things every time I rewatch it. Like there's so much deep themes in that movie. Uh, Spirited Away is another close second. Uh, but I mean, they're all just fun and just these weird fantasy worlds. Howl's Moving Castle is great. They're all just a lot of fun. Beautiful films, too. I have a soft spot for Porco Rosso, which is also one of those. Ones I haven't where, seen that one. That's oh, like one of the few I haven't seen. So but. fun. And it's also one of those where it's like, and it's a sort of World War One type yeah. technology world where the guy has a pig head. And yeah, that's yeah. You know, you get a little bit of an explanation, but it doesn't right. really matter. It's like it happened. And right. now he's a pilot with a big head and you got to just run with it. I know Miyazaki has like a fascination with like aircrafts and flight. I was reading his uh, a book about him and I think his father uh, was worked on planes or something like that. So I know that like a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of touchstone of his films, like The Wind Rises and stuff. It's all about flight and these weird. I mean, even ones uh, was the other one Prince, or uh uh, Nausicaa, I think yes. they have like those weird flying crafts and stuff. So there's always like some element of like weird flight in them. So one thing I was curious, you know, how do you go about, uh, you know, picking, connecting with artists? Because, you know, you've got some good ones here between between Joe and also uh, Pius Spock working on Slightly Exaggerated. Yeah, I'm very picky about who I work with. And uh, I guess I, before I start writing a series, like I have an art style in my head of who, what, like how the story should look. And uh, it just, you can't be, you can't rush it. You have to kind of like be patient and just kind of search the web and hopefully you'll find the right one uh, for the, for that story. Uh, like, uh, yeah, you just can't, you can't rush it. Uh, and then, I mean, besides just finding the right art style, you have to see if you guys have like, just get along. Like this is a working relationship where you guys are going to be working together for like a, for years, possibly like me and Joe have been working together since late 2018. And you kind of build this friendship over the years. Uh, Pius is similar. I saw his work from a Kickstarter book and I knew he was going to be perfect for slightly exaggerated. And uh, I reached out to him and he, he was just a little busy at the time. And I ended up waiting like almost a year before he was available to start working on slightly exaggerated. And yeah, he just, he makes a series. Like he's like the perfect art style for that over the top whimsical fantasy world with like flying sea creatures and stuff and yeah, the has done a lot for uh for boom right yeah i mean i i reached out to him before he ever did anything for boom uh oh, but yeah okay. now now he's uh he's been continuously working with boom doing a bunch of great books there right on right on joe as well jo joe's done a few books for boom too uh yes yes that's right eve um so kind of jumping back on something matt said about the book kind of going going hard right away you know uh we're like i think it's like the first page where we meet the kids and where we see what kind of book this is going to be because it's like oh all right we're, we're dropping all the swears okay all right cool cool 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, this is very much a, uh, a, a book about these three angsty teens. So I wanted to make it realistic about how teens actually speak. Like I remember being that young uh, and talking and I, I know how me and my friends would talk to each other and just what was normal back then. And especially when you put it into this kind of medieval fantasy world where you have, uh, you know, where where there's real dangers. They got these thieves after them trying to hurt them. And uh, I just try to make it realistic, like with your life on the line, uh, you know, I just, I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think it'd be abnormal for kids to talk like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, kind of curious, you know, what, what do you see as sort of the, the target audience for this book? Are you picturing this as sort of, are you pitching this as sort of all ages? Do you see it as more of a, you know, uh, adult book, but with, te- you know, uh, kids in it yeah probably more more so the the latter the adult book uh we have it rated like 16 plus so i think that'd be a good mm. age to get into it kind of like that later like middle of high school age and and up from that um but yeah i'm more more so for adults than all ages though for sure okay yeah. um what is i was kind of curious you know what is your 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 sort of philosophy when it comes to children and peril because you know obviously different creators, you know, are, are, are going to do different things, but you know, there's, there's, I think the reason that I was kind of asking about the target audience thing is because there's so much about this book that has an all ages look and feel, but also, I mean, there's some dark shit in it. <laughs> yeah, no, there is some dark stuff. I mean, that's just Joe's art style. Like obviously <laughs> she has a beautiful art style and uh, it does have almost that all ages look to it and being like these kind of t- about these teenagers, but I mean, uh, I mean, my writing style is just more probably uh, not that I'm against like writing any YA stuff. Like I've done fr- freelance YA work and stuff uh, that, that's fun. And it's like a different itch to scratch. But all of my creative and stuff is definitely more towards like adults. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I mean, putting kids in danger and stuff is just uh, I mean, if it fits the story in the world, then I don't think there's anything wrong with it if it's done the right mm-hmm. way. Yeah. yeah. So uh what was kind of the process like designing the keepers? You know, I, I guess the, in talking with, with, with Joe, I mean, who's obviously the one who's, who's, you know, designing them, you know, what were, were, were your thoughts, you know, your notes, what was the back and forth like uh, making these creatures? Yeah. I and mean, that's one of the funnest parts when we first started working on Beastlands back like late 2018, we started doing character designs um, and the beast designs, character designs. She would show me like some super fantasy styles and then like medieval realistic. And we usually ended up like somewhere in the middle for the character designs, with, like their clothing. So it's kind of like a mix of medieval and fantasy. And for the beast designs, like I would give her ideas, like the main beast, uh, Renzo, I had the mm-hmm. idea for like this big wolf. We, we want them full grown to be like the size of a horse. So they're mountable. You can put a saddle on their back. You're all your gear so it's kind of like you you have these like lifelong size of a horse like fantasy creatures uh that are your pets but we would mix together like i would have ideas like mix together these random fantasy or random like real world creature elements like for luna uh ava's main keeper she has like ram horns it's like a panther base and wings so it's kind of like real world elements but when you put them all in one creature it has that fantastical look and like i would uh you know i would give joe these kind of pretty straightforward outlined ideas and then she would give me a few few uh designs for the beast and then we would kind of choose from there and uh you know it, it didn't take with her art being so beautiful and she has a background in uh design for games and stuff it wasn't that hard to kind of progress and get these awesome designs um yeah did, did you find yourselves or, or or is there a thing where you know when you're you're working in a fantasy world with uh, a sort of collection vast breadth of these different animal creatures where you have to check sort of 
bestiaries of other franchises, you know, to make sure you haven't designed anything that looks too closely like like a Pokemon or, or you know, a Skylander or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, growing up in the 90s, like you said, like a Pokemon and like Digimon, Yu-Gi-Oh, all mm-hmm. of those kind of Monster Hunter type franchises that I was very big fans of. So it definitely influences Beastlands. But you, we wanted this to be original. Like we don't want to just be copying those Digimon right. and Pokemon and stuff. So as much as, uh, as as cool as it would be to have these uh, beasts and keepers to have like magic and elemental abilities, it just didn't fit this world and it didn't fit this kind of more realistic medieval world where we want these uh, we want these beasts to be vulnerable. We want them to be able to get sick. They can die. They can get injured if you're not a good uh, companion. So we, uh, we, we, we laid down these hard rules where they don't have any magical abilities. Um, they, they can get injured, like we said, and, uh, yeah, like, like we laid down those rules, like size of a horse, they can grow up to that and kind of mixing the fantasy elements. And, and that I think gave us more of an original look. You have a, uh, a favorite design, uh, from among the, uh, from among the keepers. That's tough. Uh, man, I mean, they're all pretty awesome. I like Renzo a lot. I have a dog. So this story is very influenced from my own experience with my dog. So Renzo is kind of like this big saber wolf but you can't go wrong with anything with wings like being able to fly around would be pretty awesome so luna is pretty awesome too okay i'm gonna i'm gonna ask this now because i don't want to forget later uh and we do like to ask our creators about uh this question so tell us about your dog i have a uh, beagle named ellie she's six years old uh she's very much the influence of the whole world of beastlands uh she was hit by a car back in 2016 and it was very traumatic experience i had to like carry her back home in my arms i thought she was dying at the time but luckily she pulled through we took her to the vet and it was a long recovery over like the next nine months of her like extra care and stuff as she uh, recovered she made a full recovery she's still here now that was back when she was just a little pup but uh i tried to really put that experience into a story like as a writer you always want your stories to have meaning and to be more personal that's like i think that's what makes a story better and uh hopefully the audience will connect with that more so as you can see like that's very much the like the the heart of these lands is uh, that human and pet uh, relationship and bond mm-hmm. how um is she the kind of pet that will will be uh on top of you or or, or next to you or in your vicinity while you're trying to write Oh, very much. Yeah. She's uh, sometimes I'm at the computer here writing and uh, she'll be behind me uh, crying, wanting me to take her out or play with her. Like, very much loves the attention. Uh, I don't have kids or anything yet. So she's uh, she's like my daughter pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I, I, I think that that sounds, you know, like a pet boy, I would take that over my cat who has finally learned that, oh, if I hit the mouse that you're using <laughs> on the laptop, that means you can't do what you're doing and you must give me the pets <laughs> he's learned this in the past 15 year old cat you know you might not be able to teach an old dog new tricks but an old cat can learn them that's funny yeah no she hasn't learned that one yet <laughs> no she, she's just taking a flopping over on my lap and either sm- swatting at the trackpad on the laptop or just flat out knocking the mouse when i take my hand off of it <laughs> really <laughs> See, this is funny, Matt, because now I'm picturing the kitchen scene in Jurassic Park, but with Bess instead of a Velociraptor. That's hilarious. <laughs> and, and just like the, uh, the the freezer door, just like flick, 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 flick. <laughs> you know, for years, I said she's the dumbest cat in the world, and I think she's just been hiding it. She's been hiding her intellect until she just really needed it. <laughs> the smart ones do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So uh, I'll uh, throw in a question here from our, uh, our grand Twitter inquisitor, Asimov Fangirl, who asks, uh, if you could get mystically bonded with an animal, 
Which one would you choose? Your pets or something more exotic? Probably something more exotic, right? Like, uh, I mean, I love my dog, but like, uh, <laughs> as, uh, as far as like real world animals, even something like a tiger or something cool like that. But like we said, like you can't go wrong with like uh, Luna, the, the beast from the comic with wings and stuff. That would be mm-hmm. pretty awesome. Absolutely. You know, I would not mystically bond with uh, especially my uh, second dog, Lola, because she's exceedingly dumb and I don't need... <laughs> that mixing with my dna <laughs> well matt you got your cat oh yeah no i could just yeah the that, problem that'll is, raise your intellect and evil stats <laughs> yeah well the thing the thing about it is if, if she stays the size she is maybe if she gets up to that keeper size it's like no because all she ever wants to be is on my lap and i would <laughs> never be able to move again because she'd fit across the entire living room she wouldn't have to even get off my lap to eat she could be on my lap and still reach the food and it would be just game over for matt never move just again death by belly rub yeah mm-hmm. an adorable trap i thought for a second well you could write her like battle cat from he-man but then i realized no she would never allow that to happen oh, hell no she if she'd be if, trying to ride you instead right if cal our older cat or our cat who passed last year was still alive he would have let me ride him but best that's not we call her queen best for a reason that would be far too undignified to let a human ride her <laughs> so uh, how did the book find its way to dark horse for the wide release yeah we had this deal in the works for a while uh like we started on kickstarter back in early 2019 uh we were kickstarting issue by issue eventually we started doing two issues at a time but we were talking with dark horse since back before the pandemic. So it's been a while since we signed the contract and uh, we just had to get all the issues finished for them, uh, one through five to release. And then once we got it done, it, it took a lot of time to lead up for marketing and stuff. And we needed like a six months for marketing. So that's why we ended up with this like June, 2022 release date. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we're still of the, uh, it's a completely creator owned deal. So we can still kickstart single issues. Like we actually have already kickstarted issues six and seven for volume two. Those are already done behind I mean, still sending out Kickstarter orders. So uh, it's a good deal. It's a good partnership. Like I, I think Dark Horse is a very respectable and uh, a publisher with lots of history. I think it's a great home for Beastlands. Cool, cool, cool. Now, uh, there's there's a note in each issue of the PDFs that says Beastlands printed in China. And I'm thinking, you know, these Kickstarters ran during the pandemic. You know, they when it came time for fulfillment, how did things go in terms of, of printing and shipping? You know, did you get caught up in the supply chain issues that, that, you know, slowed and throttled a lot of comics this past year? Definitely. Yeah. It didn't affect us too much at the start of the pandemic, but this past like six months to a year, it really has slowed down shipping of the port here in the U S printing and everything still goes quickly there. It still gets shipped out. But uh, Mm -hmm. if if it goes on a ship and has to go through the U S port, it just takes so long. Like uh, I used to get the books from the printer once it gets on the ship, like in six weeks. And now it's taking upwards like three to four months and it really slows down and, and hurts me because I, I launched multiple Kickstarters at a time. And it's, uh, it's kind of frowned upon if you're launching too many and you still haven't fulfilled the previous one. So now I'm like having to sure. launch it and I'm still like shipping out books. Um, it's, uh, it's not ideal, but I think like, you know, Kickstarter is such a cool and awesome community online where like they know that I'm shipping these books and, you know, every book touches my hand. So they all understand how it goes and this stuff just out of our control, but it sucks, but hopefully it starts to improve. Did you have like tracking on this stuff so that, you know, every, I don't know, 
week or two or you know a few days you can be like oh okay it's like here now or you know still in the port sorry guys or what you know whatever kind of yeah yeah my, my printer is really cool i've been using them for a while print ninja they're really uh great customer service and stuff so they let, they let me know when it should be like arriving at the port and then that's that's where it really gets stuck it's just taking so long to make it through the port and go through customs um so so i know when it gets to the port and then i know when it should be like picked up by ups but uh it, I have uh, kind of an idea so I can give like Kickstarter updates and let all of our backers know like how it's making it through. But it's just one of those challenges of self-publishing. I mean, that's one of the, uh, the upsides of having this deal with Dark Horse. Like I don't have to ship any books. They do all the <laughs> printing. They do everything for me. It's uh, as someone who came up, like that's how I got my start in comics. It's just creator own comics, going through Kickstarter, self-publishing. Like this is a very different experience. Uh, um, and it's uh, it's kind of nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's nice to take a moment, just sort of kick back and like, it's my yeah, problem now. Very much. Very much. <laughs> Which so, they did already have some shipping delays with our Dark Horse book too, by the way. Our uh, our original release date was Comic Shops uh, was June 15th and now they pushed it back to June 29th. Which I did just get the books like right before this interview. I just got my uh, comp copies, oh, which is really cool. Nice. Yeah, it was very cool to see. Like I didn't even expect it. It just showed up at my door. But um, yeah, they uh, for the for the actual release dates, everything got pushed back like two weeks just for just for shipping issues with the port. So yeah, it's not as much a stress on me, but it does suck. Like we were like a week away from the release date, and now it's pushed back to uh, 29th of June for comic shops and uh, July 12th for like bookstores and stuff. So just okay, a little bit yeah. longer, we'll have to wait. It, it is it is crazy how it. I mean it's 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 like that for every for, yeah, for every publisher very now. Much. It's well, especially funny. with the like page shortages and stuff like there's yeah. uh, paper shortages so that that even like puts a, a little extra time for like printing and makes the costs go up and stuff it's uh it's a headache it's it's all dominoes it's crazy i've been looking at like for a while i was trying to track marvel's release schedule so like advanced plan stuff at, at comics xf and after a while of seeing things pushed ahead like two weeks three weeks a month and i'm like i'm gonna stop doing this because yeah. it's pointless <laughs> <laughs> very much yeah but uh you know it, that's that's the environment we're in right now uh so everything yeah exactly it's 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 not just comics so but uh so the book ends on on a definite and and tragic cliffhanger um you know you mentioned six and seven there's already been a campaign for those you know are are you looking at a full volume two through dark horse you know you know what is i I guess what is sort of the plan for beastlands going forward yeah that's a great question yeah it's very much still up in the air like we like i said it's fully creator on we still own beastlands everything we have the media rights so like we are we still have the freedom to go keep doing single issues which is what we'll probably do since we already did six and seven we'll probably do um eight and nine on kickstarter and then ten that'll be the next five issues for volume two and then it's very much up in the air if, if Dark Horse will want to publish uh, Volume 2. It depends on the sales of uh, this first book. So hopefully the sales sure. go good and we'll get to, uh, <laughs> they'll want to uh, publish Volume 2 also. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think things will go well and I think they'll want to publish that too. But uh, that's what I'm hoping for. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah. So, so as we're recording this, uh, you're at the tail end of a Kickstarter campaign for Slightly Exaggerated. Uh, the, the like third and fourth issues, which is a yep. uh, tre- treasure hunt fantasy adventure uh, with some religious themes. And uh, but you know, by the time this this drops, the campaign will be over. But you've also more than tripled your initial goal. So, you know, no, no, no worries there. But, uh, you know, this is this is your 15th Kickstarter. Uh, you've got yeah. quite a few under your belt. You know, do you feel like at this point you've 
uh, mastered the art of crowdfunding, if that's a feeling that can be felt. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I still get nervous before launching a new Kickstarter. Those nerves are always there. Like you wonder, is this just luck? Are people still going to want to buy my stuff? Like, do I actually have fans? But I mean, I think that's just a little bit of imposter syndrome too, but I definitely feel like I've mastered, like I'm helping a lot of friends who are also launching comics. Like I'm glad to like try to help them and share what I know. And so they can have successful Kickstarters. Um, but yeah, I feel like I've mastered it. Like I've, I've been able to switch to like full-time writing because of my success on Kickstarter for like the past three years. And now getting some freelance writing and working with publishers like Dark Horse and other stuff unannounced. Um, definitely feel like I've mastered it. Like it's a lot of work and I, I don't see myself ever leaving crowdfunding for good, but it'd be nice to have a mix of like crowdfunding and, and hopefully working with like books that get picked up through publishers too. It'd, it'd be a good to like mix those. When it comes to... Uh crowdfunding, what is the best piece of advice that you've received uh, or or would impart to others? <laughs> Starting small, like for your first one, my first Kickstarter was like 12 people, like for a couple hundred bucks. And now you see like the level I'm at, like you just have to start small and build up over the years. Like you're not going to get this level of success, like where I'm at with my 15 Kickstarter on your first, like through your first five unless you're like scott snyder or keanu reeves launching a comic on <laughs> kickstarter then you know you, you don't have any more you go ahead and launch it but otherwise uh build up small and you'll definitely uh, and you could start to build that audience like I, like I, I do feel like i've mastered kickstarter but i'm always learning new stuff every launch and trying new stuff so it's it's definitely still like i'm gradually i might have my black belt in kickstarters but <laughs> i'm uh you know continuously getting better with every launch now now when keanu showed up on, on, on Kickstarter. Was there a piece of you that was like that motherfucker? <laughs> a little bit, but you can't be mad at it. Like I, I try to, I'm a pretty optimistic guy and uh, I try to think of it like there's bringing more eyes to Kickstarter. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, coincidentally, I had some of my biggest launches back then when Scott Snyder was on there and Keanu Reeves, like it is a little bit of like a, a slap in the face, like to see him using Kickstarter with Boom Studios. But then again, it's, it's like, it's whatever. It's just, uh, I guess the rising tide, they say like, helps all boats. So I, I think it's, uh, if anything, it helped get more eyes on Kickstarter. Like Kickstarter is still such a niche thing that a lot of people don't know about. I mean, there's even a lot of comic readers that don't go to Kickstarter to buy comics. So I think with that and like the pandemic, like comic shops were shut down a while and these big names using it, it kind of helped elevate Kickstarter to like a, uh, more well-known. And, and now I think people think almost differently of Kickstarter. Like back in the day, when I first started back in like 2016, 2017 on there, they kind of looked at Kickstarter as like not as good quality, but now seeing these big companies and big names mm -hmm. use it, I think it's uh, much more respectable than it used to be. John Wick lifts all boats. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Episode title. Yeah. <laughs> um, a, uh, Looking at the slightly exaggerated Kickstarter, you know, one thing that you talk about in a couple places uh, on the page is the book's paper quality. Um, why, why was that something that you wanted to kind of drive home in, in pitching the campaign? Yeah, because I mean, I do sell my books on Kickstarter for like a premium price compared to a comic shop. Like you can just get any book from a comic shop for much cheaper than these Kickstarter orders. So I think Kickstarter is very much uh, a niche thing for like these super fans that want to support you. They don't mind paying the premium for these single issue books. Um, where you try to give them, you try to give them, uh, I guess an, enough of a deal where it's worth their money. But I also, for my self-publishing books, I'm a very much like a book design nerd where I, my page weights are very high. They're have matte covers. Like these single issues are probably the nicest single issues you ever find on a, uh, 
uh, like compared to like a comic shop. And we have these collector's versions with like foil stamp, numeric foil stamping out of a thousand. So there's only a thousand of those They each have like a unique number. We have like foil titles on those collector versions. So they're like really nice books for single issues. So I just try to really get that point across that I, I want this to like feel good in your hands and be worth your money. Even though it's just a single issue, I want it to be like a really like nice collector's item. I like the idea of you and a few other indie creators all in a room comparing uh, the paperweights of your campaigns, like the business card scene in American Psycho. <laughs> I don't know if other uh, self-publishers give it that much thought that I do, but even working with Dark Horse, like I was, uh, I don't know if I was a pain in their ass, but I was very much picky about like having a matte cover, having spot gloss on the front and back. Like I, I just care about that stuff so much. Uh, I mean, I'm sure some writers and creators are just like, whatever, just print the book. But mm -hmm. that stuff really matters to me. Like I, I just care about book design a lot. When, with this book, wh where did the design aesthetic for the, the, not the physical book, but the internals come from? Because there's an interesting blend of both the fantastic and the mundane isn't the right word, but the, the costuming is more modern. Some of the tech is more modern, not, you know, 21st century, but there's a vibe to it not quite steampunk i don't want to use that particularly at this point reductive term but where did that sort of blend of the fantastic and the more mundane coming in yeah it is very much its own unique world where it does have kind of that steampunk punk feel like i know where you're going with that but i guess that's a that's a lot of just pious like doing awesome art and just being original in his art like i'm just lucky like i said i'm lucky to just find these like perfect artists for these series. And I'm lucky to work with these amazing artists. It makes my job a lot easier as a writer when you have this beautiful art to help pitch the book. And it's a treat every time I get like some of this beautiful art into my uh, inbox it makes my day. So it's just, uh, just being lucky where he's just an awesome designer and awesome artist. Like I worked with him just like I worked with Joe on B sense where we kind of did like character designs and, and went through, but it didn't take that many revisions really. Like he had this like original character design for the main character Mia already. And uh, yeah, it definitely has like its own original feel that's just a credit to Pius for that speaking of your main character is there a particular joy in writing a character especially a protagonist who has a more flexible morality shall we say yeah. versus it's a lot of a fun traditional hero no, it's a lot of fun. Like she's a character who's dying, who doesn't have much to lose. And uh, she just wants to spend the rest of her life free. Like it definitely gives you a lot of room to have a good character arc and grow, but it's fun writing a character starting out like that, who, uh, who like you said, has like a questionable morality and is just out for themselves. But it, it, like I said, it gives her room to grow too in the next two issues. I also thought the, the use of religion jumped out at me fantasy stories often have these you know polytheistic pantheons or if there's a single god they're some sort of you know cthulhu-esque whatever or something this the religion here feels just very natural to the to the modern world it's like okay we need to pray to god it's mm -hmm. not you know pray to eth car gun crock or whatever uh where's the religion come in with this and the choice to use something that felt more like something we could see every day 
Yeah. Should, uh, before he answers, I wish we had written that made up God's name in the notes because I want to see how that's spelled. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to uh, we'll have to go back and see how that's spelled. But um, yeah, Five I just tried to make it. <laughs> I tried to make it relatable. Like, like I did have these kind of made up God names. There's kind of like these three main religions in the story, and we did have these kind of made up names, but it, it just wasn't fitting well. Like I wanted to do, to be more relatable to the real world where people understand where we're getting at when they're praying and stuff. And uh, we, you will see some of that in the later issues. Like we actually use some of the God names and stuff, but we just didn't want it to be too, uh, I don't know, like too, too much in the world where people don't, people don't know these gods and stuff. And I just feel like you can relate to them more if you just call it by a God. Cause to them, it is their God. Like this is, this is their God. This is their world. Yeah. Um, in addition to comics, you've also done work for video games, and including the one that, if I read it correctly, includes in-game comic, you know, sequential comic art. Um, you know, what kind of what kind of stuff do you have to do differently for that? I mean, just generally, how is is writing for video games versus writing for comics? It's very different. Uh, I've had a lot of different experiences with video games. I'm, I'm very passionate about games too, just as I am about comics. So it's something I just do because I'm interested in it. Uh, and it's cool to get paid to write games, but it's, it's very different where some jobs can be just naming like guns and writing character descriptions. Like, and that could be like a whole writing gig, which is not as, as much fun. That's a lot of like busy work, but uh, that, that uh, game called the pauldron, I, uh, I kind of made this comic with them and they kind of chopped it up and used these like panels into like cutscenes in the game which was really cool but it's fun i would like to do more of uh game writing and hopefully like come in earlier on like i feel like game writing is so much like a, of an afterthought sometimes where they work on the design the graphics and everything and uh the programming and then they bring in the writer late to just kind of like throw something together but it would be cool to be a part of a triple a or indie studio from the start and kind of like develop it with develop the story with them from the start i think that'd be a lot of fun you have a favorite uh what's your what's your what's your video game you know what's your franchise of choice the last of us on uh playstation by naughty dog is very much a favorite i, I really like story focused games or explore exploration games like zelda and stuff um the pathless and sable were two recent ones that i really love but anything that's focused on story and exploration i just don't have time for like anything with like multiplayer or anything like too addictive i gotta just focus to like single player story games right on yeah um yeah, I have I have barely any time for. It. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> you know, I just sit there and just wander around Final Fantasy for hours and hours, and now it's like I have enough mental bandwidth for Candy Crush. Ah <laughs> 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 oh, man, but uh, what are you? What else are you are working on right now that you can talk about? <laughs> Yeah, a lot of stuff like uh, a lot of stuff that I can't talk about. I'm kind of pitching to some of my favorite publishers, working on some freelance work uh, for a popular webcomic company. And mm. uh, I guess what can I talk about? Uh, I'm working on, like we said, Beastlands. We have more Beastlands coming. Slightly exaggerated, these two issues. We're thinking about doing volume two, possibly. Uh, uh, the Wild Cosmos is a series I have with Scout Comics. We have two more issues with that. Those will come to Kickstarter and then come out with Scout. Uh, I launched a brand new series called Majestic uh, on Kickstarter back in December. That one is uh, the first time I ever launched like a full graphic novel instead of single issue by issue, which it did really well. It was kind of a, a risk because you kind of build your audience on Kickstarter a lot mm -hmm. issue by issue instead of a uh, 
uh, you know, the direct market, you hear like sales drop so much after that first issue, they drop like double, but Kickstarter is kind of like the opposite where if you keep uh, going back with the same series, you really like will build up the audience and get a lot of new people buying the full series. So it was a risk to just do like the whole series. It was like four issues of content and like a full graphic novel in one Kickstarter, but it did well. But I think, uh, I think like the future Kickstarters will really pay off where we're going to do like a volume two and three for Majestic. And I think those could be possibly some of my big, biggest Kickstarters. We just do like, just stick with the volumes of issue by issue. So it's just, uh, like I said, always trying new stuff on Kickstarter, trying to do a full graphic novel instead of issue by issue. You, you kind of, uh, get it done a lot quicker. Like kickstarting kickstarters usually run for like 30 days and uh and it's a lot of time so it could take like you know two years to launch four kickstarters for one series rather than getting it all done in one it was a mm -hmm. it was an experiment that paid off and i'm really uh it's, it's like another weird fantasy world about a shapeshifter girl and it'll be a really fun series we should have that one done this september that, that's interesting i hadn't heard that before about uh, singles doing better on kickstarter because it helps kind of build the audience incrementally yeah, like that's where we had a lot of our growth with like Beastlands. That's probably my most successful series on Kickstarter. And uh, like your first, the, the first issue will be your smallest Kickstarter usually with the lowest amount mm -hmm. of backers and the lowest money because they only have one issue to buy. But then it'll start to like grow and grow as you have two issues, three issues, four or five. And now we're up to seven. And it's just, you know, it's just growing and growing with each Kickstarter. You and have, you get that you always... word of mouth and it builds like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because you get people, you get all these new people who just, a lot of people just find comics organically on Kickstarter. Like they, they they just go on Kickstarter looking for new series and uh, and you have people looking for a new series. And if they see if you have an audience already coming back for the next two issues, six and seven, that kind of like makes the series more popular on Kickstarter. So then you get a lot of brand new people who have never heard of it and it'll get all seven issues compared to like the direct market. It's kind of hard once those mm -hmm. issues got to print. It's hard to like get all seven unless you just get like the trade. Yeah. Well, it's also it's more collector minded. You know what I mean? So like, yeah, there's the. There's the waiting of the number one uh, uh so to speak and then you know right right the drop off but uh yeah yeah um, it's interesting just very different markets and uh it'd be cool if one day somebody could make some type of crowdfunding company that like connects with diamond or comic shops but for now they're very different and they work very different it's kind of uh it's just interesting how it all works yeah absolutely always fun to see how the sausage gets made but uh, yeah What's uh what is a hill that you want to climb that you haven't gotten to yet? Uh either actual or metaphorical. I, I am a big hiker, so I'm always uh I am always going up mountains and stuff and backpacking. But uh I mean as a like I, I got into comics because I love creator-owned comics. Uh, you know, it'd be cool to write for some of the big two. Obviously, I would not turn down any writing work. Uh, but mm -hmm. just working with more publishers like Dark Horse, like Vault Comics, Boom. Uh, obviously, the biggest hill would be Image. That's my top favorite publisher for creator-owned comics. They obviously have, like, the best deal for a reason and the most notable. So Image is definitely it's probably the biggest hill. It'd be cool to get an Image series. Yeah. So uh, I guess in terms of, of, of promotion and what have you, you know, are you doing conventions this year? You have any lined up? Yeah, I already did. Uh, I did a bunch this past fall. Once I started coming back from COVID, I did uh, the San Diego special edition, LA, Ontario, out in California. And uh, I'm trying to get into San Diego uh, next month. Hopefully I can make it that one. That'll be right after like the Beastlands trade uh, release in June or in July, the bookstore release. So it'd be nice to have copies there. And uh, I'll definitely be at LA this December. I might go to New York, hopefully. And uh, that'd be nice like to fly out there on the East Coast for that one. I'm, I'm based in California now, but that's it for now. Um, 
those are the big ones. Yeah, I, I just try to make it to the big ones these days. Uh, the small ones, just uh, just not enough people to really like make it worth your time and stuff. I used to, I've done that whole convention grind, going to all the small shows, and uh, I, I hopefully feel like I'm past that. I can just go to these big ones and uh, just have like these bigger audiences. How about like store store signings? Anything like that? Yeah, we're gonna set up some signings for uh, the the Beastlands release. I'm gonna do a couple comic shops. I'm gonna I think we're gonna be doing Torpedo Comics in LA, and then uh, the Barnes and Noble shop where I live in Orange County. Very cool. So, um, penultimate question: What are you What are you reading right now? Step by Bloody Step is a great one that I've been reading. Uh, have you guys read that by Cy Spurrier and Matthias? Yeah, beautiful book, completely silent. Um, but they, they, they pack so much detail, like in every panel, it's, uh, it's kind of crazy how you can like read that. Even though there's no words, you just like feel exhausted after there's just so much detail and such a beautiful book. That's another, like I said, like these fantasy worlds that I love, uh, a trade I just read recently was, uh, we only find them when they're dead by Al Ewing mm. and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, what's the artist? Simone, Simone DeMeo. Yeah. 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 Uh, beautiful book. And, uh, I know the volume two just came out, so I want to pick up that volume two trade, but yeah, that was amazing. Just really well done. Uh, Al's an amazing writer. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Curtis, this has been uh, a fantastic time. Final question before we release you back into the world. Uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with uh, Beastlands and slightly exaggerated your Kickstarters, everything you got going on? Yeah, I am uh, at Curtis Clow on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook page, and uh, I have a mailing list. You can sign up on my company website, twoinfinitystudios.com. And I have a portfolio site, curtisclow.com, if you ever got to get a hold of me. And uh, yeah, my mailing list is probably the best spot to see my new books and everything. And yeah, the Beastlands Dark Horse trade is June 29th now and July 12th in, uh, in uh, bookstores. Right on. Well, Curtis, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. WNQA. And we are at Philly Pride, and I am here with writer Jadzia Axelrod, author of the recent DC Comics graphic novel, Galaxy the Prettiest Star. Thanks for sitting down with us, Jadzia. Oh, no problem. How is your Pride going? Oh, it's going great. We just had a signing here at Pride. I was so excited to do a signing at Pride. Uh, this is the first signing um, for the book that I've done, and to do it at Philly Pride uh, was just incredible. Such a wonderful response from people. It's been great. Um, I was part of the march earlier, and that was just a delight. We're glad to hear it. Uh, for those not familiar with the book, uh, let's. I'll read the blurb. Uh, Taylor Barzillay has the perfect life. Good looks, good grades, starter on the basketball team, a loving family, even an adorable corgi. Every day in Taylor's life is perfect, and every day is torture. Taylor is actually the galaxy crown, an alien princess from the planet Siandi? Siandi, yeah. And one of the few survivors of an intergalactic war. For six long, painful years, Taylor has accepted her duty to remain in hiding as a boy on Earth. That all changes when Taylor meets Metropolis City Girl Catherine Call Me Cat Silverbird, whose confidence is electrified. Suddenly, Taylor no longer wants to hide, even if exposing her true identity could attract her greatest enemies. So, what's the origin of this book? Did you approach DC? Did DC approach you? DC came to me um, way back, because this book has been long in development, um, mostly thanks to the pandemic. 
But long time ago, uh, Michelle Wells, who was in charge of DC's YA line at the time, um, approached my agent at the time and said, Hi, we're doing the y this YA graphic novels. Um, we're looking for people who um, can write for a teenage audience and uh, have a familiarity with the characters, but also have a, a different sort of point of view on them. And my agent said, do I have the girl for you? <laughs> and we got in touch, and I sent them several pitches um, that I thought they were going to pick instead. <laughs> uh, because they were... Um, they were... Uh, excuse me. Oh, yeah, I thought they were going to pick the other pitches. I had a Superman pitch, I had a Lex Luthor pitch, where he takes over a boarding school. Yeah, these were all great pitches. Um, and now at the bottom I had what would become Galaxy. Uh, just two sentences. Um, I had the hook. And uh, I didn't think they were going to go for it. But it's like... I had to try. I was going to kick myself if I didn't. So I sent that in and that was the one they fell in love with. And that was the one they wanted. I was, it was a complete surprise. I'm so glad that that's the one they chose because the book came out beautifully. How did you get connected with Jess Taylor, your artist on the project? They selected Jess. Uh, there was a lot of different artists we were looking at, a lot of different styles. Um, and uh, Sarah Miller, who's the editor, showed me Jess's work, and I was just stunned because it's gorgeous. And I was like, that's the one. <laughs> they are who I want to draw the book. And thankfully, they agreed. How much of the design for Taylor came from Jess? Did you give them any notes in particular, or did they just you just want alien princess? Go for it. Oh, uh, there's a lot of back and forth. Um, there's certain things that are in the script. Her skin being purple, her having horns. Um, all of that was my conception. And I had done a design of Taylor, because I'm also an illustrator, with the pitch originally. So I had done a design um, as part of the pitch. And then Jess took that and took the script, and we did a lot of back and forth to kind of get the look right. Um, and they did an amazing job. It's not easy to design an alien and not have them look like an already existing alien. We, we live in a golden age of alien designs. The past uh, multiple hundred years of science fiction has given us many great alien designs. And we wanted, we still wanted Taylor to have a human silhouette, um, which is something strange with the horns on top. So getting exactly the right horns without making her look demonic or making her look uh, to fantasy um, and having antlers or something like that. That was tough. That was a real tough. Um, I love what Jess came up with, which is the uh, kind of headband look. It looks sort of like a hot rod spoiler and sort of like headphones. It's like a really beautiful look and um, it's, just, it's just perfect. So I, I would have to say after having read and loved the book, uh, aside from, from Taylor herself, the breakout character has to be Argus the Corgi. I love Argus. 
Where did Argus the Corgi... Why a Corgi, other than that they are adorable and everyone loves a teeny dog with tiny legs? Right, well, that's number one. It's because they're adorable and everyone loves a teeny dog with tiny legs. That's full stop. But also, uh, Corgis are herding dogs and they're very smart. They're extremely intelligent. Uh, A friend of mine has a Corgi and I remember we tried to do the dog intelligence test where you put a blanket over your dog and you time how long it takes them to get out. And we tried to do that. And her dog was like, I know what you're doing. And would not allow us to put a blanket over his head. So Corgi is super smart. They're, They're herding dogs. They're always in control of the pack. And so to figure out a a dog that Argus, who, spoilers, is kind of an alien robot in disguise as a dog. Um, it's just, Corgi just seemed natural. It, it fit his temperament and uh, his personality to be this smart uh, herding dog. You said you pitched this to DC knowing it was a DC pitch. Mm-hmm. How much did you consider ties to the larger DC universe? The book really only has a few tangential references to Superman, since Cat is from Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, Superman takes a, a, casts a large shadow. Because um, you can't be an alien superhero in the DC universe and not feel the, the weight of super, ex, Superman-like expectations. Um, but yeah, it was a decision made both by me and the editor to not have too many like walk-ons from the rest of the characters of the DC universe. And part of that is the setting, which is very intentionally a, a private part of the DC universe. Like it doesn't take place in Metropolis, it doesn't take place in Gotham. Um, so to have any of those traditional characters would be unnatural. Like, they would have to go out of their way, and that would seem weird and forced. But the other thing is I really wanted this book to stand on its own. I didn't want it to be, um, like, a Superman story with Galaxy. I wanted it to be Galaxy and and to establish who she is and where she comes from. Um, I will tell you, the first draft, I did have Ma Hunkle, the Red Tornado, in this. We had to cut her because it was just too, it was ruining the pacing and there was too many characters. And that was the right call. It's a better book without Ma Hunkle. Um, but I, d- I am sad that uh, we had to do that. that. Yeah, as a longtime fan of the JSA, that would have been freaking delightful. It would have delightful. been so great. I, I, I feel like she is one of, she should be a bigger deal than she is. She's like the first female superhero. And not only that, she's this huge, like, there's this tough butch broad, and, like, why would you not want to celebrate that every single day? Um, so, fingers crossed, one day I'll get to write Ma Hunkle into something, um, but she sadly was not able to be in Galaxy. One of the lines that really jumped out at me was something Kat says about when Taylor is all like, oh, did you ever see Superman? And Cat's like, yeah, you don't want to see Superman. If you're seeing Superman, something bad is happening. And Taylor talks about having been in the car accident and losing her leg. That is a really thoughtful moment. It's not something you usually get. You're like, oh, Superman. 
just where did that as a, an idea come into the book? Um, it just came to of like thinking what it would be like to be in Metropolis. Like, what does it mean to have all these super characters around? And it's like, we get to see their adventures from their point of view. And it's exhilarating and fun, and they get to save the day. But if you are someone who's being saved by Superman, that by definition means something horrible has happened to you. That if you need to be saved. Um, so, and that's something we never hear much about. And I just want to... It was just struck me imagining myself in Kat's position and what her character might say in these situations. And like that idea struck me much the same way it struck you. It's just like, it's a very true thing that we don't think about. Especially when it comes to Superman. Like, you see Batman, you're usually expecting, okay, the Joker is also there. Right. But Superman is, is Superman. Everybody wants to see a you know, smiling hero, but it's like, oh, right, you just your car just got stomped on by the toy man's giant robot. Right, or there's an iceberg that's going to break the bridge, or, or, you know, who knows what. And, like, that's just part and parcel of living in a superhero universe. But it also is probably terrifying. I, I would wager. So the book is a not undisguised trans metaphor. Absolutely not undisguised. There's a trans flag on the cover. Right, exactly. But how is it trying to write the metaphor without losing the story in the metaphor? Well, um... You have one Because this... I think I dodged that bullet pretty easily. Because not only is Taylor queer and trans allegorically with the alien identity and keeping that in hand, she's also queer and trans literally. Like, she uh, was raised as a boy with a boy's puberty, and her true form is that of a, a girl. Um, she also, fall, as a girl, falls in love with a girl. So she is um, absolutely trans and queer. And so that story is there, whether the sci-fi rigmarole is there or not. The sci-fi rigmarole is there um, because that's fun, first off. But it's also there so that people who are not necessarily um, trans femme teenagers can still see themselves in the journey of, of what she's going through. And that's, if I may toot my own horn, I think I, I think I did succeed in that because I get a lot of messages from people who are transmasculine, people who are non-binary, and cis people who still see themselves in this story and it still relates to them deeply which touches my heart in ways that I cannot adequately express. Um, so, and I, I don't think that would have happened if we had not had the sci-fi role and not had the, the allegory nature, um, because that allowed the story to keep from focusing too much on the details of being a girl and the larger details of what it means to be trans and what it means to have secrets and what it means to have this identity that people don't necessarily see when they look at you. And I think everyone can relate to that, no matter who they are. You do a lot of world building in the book that does not directly... It directly impacts the story in that the war between the Siandi and the Vane mm -hmm. are why we're here. But the Vane themselves, while a sort of looming presence, aren't 
in the book. No. Was there ever a version where there was more of that? Or was that just important as world building so we understood why this was going on? Uh, and in, in very early synopsis, there was more of an action ending where, uh, not the vein themselves, but some, like a harbinger of the vein showed up. Um, it was going to be Lobo. <laughs> Early versions of this book were wild, just FYI. <laughs> um, and then the idea, and it had more of an action ending. And I want to thank Michelle, who, who read that and was like, this is not how this story ends. Like, this is not this book. Everything's great, but the ending, the ending is off. Um, and she is right, because here's the problem. Like, if you bring in the vein, or you bring in someone sent by the vein, then the story becomes about them. The story becomes, how does Taylor stop the vein? And that's not the story we wanted to tell. And it also means that, like, the people that Taylor is struggling against were right. Which is also not the story we wanted to tell. Like, she should have stayed in hiding if the veins show up. Like, their principal was right to kick her out of school because she is attracting dangerous things. Like, all of those things that everyone is afraid of then happen. And then the entire book is undermined. Um, so we couldn't have them show up in this book. If we get a sequel, then we can tell a different story and then the vein can be shown. I, I know Jess is chomping at the bit to design the vein. Um, so I would love to see them. So that actually segues nicely into my next question, which is, do you have a sequel in mind? I have so many sequels in mind. I can write these characters to my dying breath. Like, I love them. I love their story. I have very specific ideas of what I would like for the sequel, which is currently in my head named Galaxy Ashes to Ashes, um, keeping with the David Bowie theme. Um, and then after that, if we are so fortunate, we'll have more and I have more David Bowie songs to take from that. But it's like, yeah, I have a complete plot ready the moment DC wants it. You're, you're really doing a good job of segueing into my next questions because uh, Hello. Dan, my podcasting partner, would not allow me to get away with these, interviewing someone who did a book with this much Bowie in it to not ask, favorite album? Um, I'm a huge fan of, is it Earthling? I'm a little blitz from Pride. So now, yeah. is that the one with looking for satellites on it? I think so. That might be. I mean, I love Ziggy Stardust. and Because that was the first one I heard when I was a teenager, and that's why it's in the book. Um, because that was my first exposure to this really cool, sexy brand of queerness, as opposed to, like, a tragic brand of queerness or a comical brand of queerness. Like, it was this really bold, sexy queerness. And, and that's what I wanted to do with the book as well. So that's the reverence. So probably Ziggy remains high in my esteem no matter what. Um, I do love Earthling. So uh, as we're, we're wrapping up, uh, what are you reading right now? What am I re I just got done reading finally uh, Cheer Up by Crystal Frazier, and I'm forgetting the artist, and I feel like a horrible person. Uh, love and pom poms. Cheer up, love and pom poms. We interviewed Crystal right when that came out, and I'm forgetting the artist too, and oh, I feel no. equally terrible. And we will put that put it, somewhere. Put in the we'll, we'll do a do link an to edit. that. Do yeah. an edit right now, so you can, here's the edit for the artist name who is Val Wise. Thank you for that. Um, 
Yeah, I just read it. It's a delight. Uh, it's just an absolutely delightful book from start to finish. And uh, finally, where can people follow you online if you so wish to be followed? Sure. Uh, I'm Planet X on Twitter and Planet X on Instagram. And you can find my website at jedziaaxelrod.com. And uh, that's, that's, that's it. What? Well, thanks for sitting down with us, Jedzia. Have a good rest of your pride. Thank you. And you do the same. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom, Chris's on Infinite Earths, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. Uh, P.S. Matt and Will, sorry I made you read White Knight again. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. A $3 donation gets you access to our new bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from ComicsXF, Liz Large from ComicsXF, Will Nevin from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, the Forceworks character Century was apparently part of Combo Man. W-N-Q-A.